tonight's headlines, folks. Chimpam launched into outer space on NASA rocket. Uh, James Cameron's Avatar, the film that made $2 billion. And Spanish Armada crushes Dutch in Battle of Gembloat. Plus, a report from Mars about how to keep your vacuum cleaner clean. Those are the headlines. Now, where did I put my Viagra? News Bang, a reality check for the unwary. 1961. 1961, and the race for space went ape as NASA launched Ham the Chimp into orbit. It was mankind's first attempt to see if a hairy, feck-flinging primate could be strapped into a rocket and shot into the void without getting carsick. The mission, codenamed We Were Drunk When We Thought of This, was deemed an unqualified success when Ham splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean later that day, babbling incoherently about stars where there should have been skies. He'd also developed an insatiable lust for Tang that powdered orange drink no one on Earth can stomach. NASA hailed it as a great leap forward for science fiction, but did not comment on what they planned to do with their soiled trousers. The chimpanzee, who couldn't even wipe his own bottom before blast off, now had seen more of space than most postmen during Christmas overtime. The Biffy Hughes and Fells, the Cosi 1578. On this day, in 1578, the Eighty Years' War took a turn for the worse for the rebellious Belgians at the Battle of Jamblou. The Spaniards, led by General Cubal Lopez, dealt a crushing blow to their forces, sending them packing like sausages without buns. Eyewitness reports tell of a sea of blood and broken dreams as Lopez's men advanced on Brussels itself. This spelled finito for the Union of Brussels, not to be confused with today's EU monstrosity, which promptly relocated to Antwerp where it was believed to be safer. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. The victory was so complete that even now Belgian schoolchildren are taught about it, when they can be bothered to show up for class. News Bang, taking the pulse of truth one beat at a time. Shakanaka Giles here, with your gloomy weather forecast for tomorrow, Bright and early tomorrow, the skies will open up like a drunken sailor's wallet. Expect downpours as if the heavens are weeping great, watery tears. Raincoats at the ready, umbrellas primed for this weather's coming in like a tidal wave. Across the Midlands, it'll be a day of blustery winds, whipping up leaves and hairdos alike. The wind will be howling like a pack of wolves on a full moon night. Now to our northernmost regions, where winter still holds sway. Snowfall will be as plentiful as mince pies at Christmas. Dress warmly and remember to shovel your driveways before embarking on any frosty adventures. In summary then, prepare for wet weather. Brace against blustery winds and embrace the snowy season. And that's all the weather. The Biffy Hughes and Fells, 
Lucosia 1578. The year is 1578, and the Battle of Jamblou has left the world reeling. The Eighty Years' War saw Spain emerge victorious, dealing a crippling blow to the rebel provinces and spelling doom for the Union of Brussels. This devastating triumph looms over the States General of the Netherlands, forcing a hasty relocation from Brussels to Antwerp. What does this mean for Europe? Will this be the final nail in the coffin for rebellious provinces or merely a blip on the radar of history? And we've been hearing about this momentous battle in 1578, which could change everything in Europe. Brian Bastable is at our Newsbang Bunker. Martin, my old chum, listen to this infernal racket as the crack of gunfire rips through the air and splits the head of a rabbit into three neat pieces on that tree stump over there. I tell you, Martin, the smell of war is so thick in this battlefield it's making me gag like a cat caught in a trap. Look at these fellows over here, covered from head to toe in dirt and blood, reeking like last week's rotten fish heads they found behind some tavern down by the river. They don't even know why they are fighting anymore, only that their leaders have ordered them to do so or face certain death. The Battle of Gemblu has become one massive cockfight between two men trying to prove who is top dog while their subjects cower beneath them in fear for their lives. But this victory will not last long because those who follow are already plotting against those currently holding power with an iron fist and no room for compassion or mercy. The rebels may be disintegrating now, but soon they will rise again like a phoenix from its ashes and fight back with more determination than ever before. As I report from this field drenched in blood and sweat, I can see how meaningless all these deaths truly are as we stand witness to history repeating itself time after time without end until there is nothing left but dry bones bleaching under the unforgiving sun. Brian Bastable reporting live from 1578 where today marks another senseless slaughter at Gembleu. Etain le décise de 2013. In a shocking turn of events, the Pemex Executive Tower in Mexico City has become the epicenter of a calamitous gas leak explosion, a blast that has left at least 37 souls extinguished and over a hundred more injured. The incident, which has been attributed to an adjacent building's electrical system failure, serves as a stark reminder of the perils that lurk beneath our very feet. And for further analysis on this catastrophic event, we turn to our resident expert on all things explosive, Ken Shit. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to transport you back to a time when the world was still spinning on its axis, but not without a hitch. It's 2013, and Mexico City is the stage for a disaster that would make even the most hardened of us shed a tear. The Pemex Executive Tower, that monstrous skyscraper housing one of the largest petroleum companies in the world, was rocked by an explosion so powerful it could have shaken Elvis out of his grave. The building adjacent to it took the brunt of it all, leaving at least 37 people dead and another 121 injured in its wake. This wasn't some freak accident either, no siree. A gas leak underneath that godforsaken tower was responsible for this horrific tragedy. And what did they do about it? They initially evacuated the building due to a problem with their electrical system. Can you believe that shit? It's like something out of a B-grade horror movie. 
Mexico City itself is no stranger to disasters. Earthquakes are as common as traffic jams down there. But this, this was different. This was like Mother Nature herself had taken offense at humanity's treatment of her planet and decided to teach us all a lesson we wouldn't forget in a hurry. And what about Pemex, the company responsible for this catastrophe? They were supposed to be experts in handling dangerous substances like gasoline and oil. Instead, they turned their tower into an inferno that claimed innocent lives and left others scarred for life. Shame on them. Shame on every single person involved in this disaster. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that no matter how advanced we think we are as humans, nature will always have the final say. And when she does speak up, we should listen carefully or risk facing her wrath once again. Newsbang, the news that stays news, unlike the news that gets screwed. Ryder Boff reporting on the time Doug Williams, the first African-American quarterback, led the Washington Redskins to victory in Super Bowl XXII, a momentous occasion that saw Williams shatter records and take home MVP honors. Ah, the year is 1988, a time when the hairs were big and the shorts were tight. A momentous occasion as Doug Williams, that paragon of pigskin prowess, became the first African-American quarterback to play and win a Super Bowl. Leading his Washington Redskins with the grace of a swan in a tutu to victory in Super Bowl XXII. Williams shattered not one but two Super Bowl passing records faster than you can say crumpet. Named Super Bowl MVP, he was more valuable than my Aunt Mabel's secret stash of sherry. The Washington Commanders, or Redskins as they were known back then, pranced onto the field like knights at a medieval jousting tournament. They've played more games than I've had hot dinners, and let me tell you, that's no small feat. With over 600 total wins under their belt, they're practically American football royalty. Super Bowl Weithwais saw them face off against the Denver Broncos in what could only be described as an absolute trouncing. 42-10. It was like watching a pack of schoolboys take on gladiators. By halftime, it was clear who'd been doing their homework and who'd been playing truant. Uh, and there's Doug Williams now. What an arm. He throws that ball like Zeus hurling thunderbolts from Mount Olympus. The Broncos scrambling about like headless chickens at feeding time. Touchdown after touchdown for the Redskins. It's pandemonium here. Reminds me of my own glory days on the pitch. Well, sort of. There I was at Stinkforth County Primary School, Sports Day 62, tasked with carrying an egg on a spoon across a field riddled with molehills. Let's just say I left more egg on the grass than in my spoon by race end. But back to our hero Doug Williams, standing tall amidst giants. He showed us all that day what it means to be truly super in this bowl we call life. And speaking of bowls, reminds me of when I accidentally dropped my mother-in-law's antique fruit bowl during Christmas 87. But that's another story for another time. I'm Ryder Boff reminding you whether it's eggs on spoons or footballs in end zones, keep your eye on the prize and maybe one day you too can make history. Here's Polly Beep with today's travel news. What's it like out there, Polly? Well, Martin, we've got a crackerjack story for you today, straight from the archives of January 31st, 2000. 
That's right, Alaska Airlines Flight 261 has decided to take an impromptu dip in the Pacific Ocean near Anacapa Island, California. What an utter travesty. I bet that would give your seafood platter quite the kick. If you're driving around near San Francisco today, make sure to keep an eye out for detours due to the unfortunate cloud of confusion surrounding the area. Speaking of unfortunate events in our glorious past, let's zip back in time to 1957 and witness another doozy. A DC-7B operated by Douglas Aircraft collided with a US Air Force F-89 and crash-landed into a schoolyard in Pacoima, California. Imagine the pandemonium. Just when the kids were getting ready for their afternoon nap, along comes this monstrous collision. We advise avoiding any travel plans around Los Angeles today. It might just be too dangerous for your delicate sensibilities. But wait, there's more. In the spirit of traffic calamities, we have reports of massive disruptions on London's A4 roadway due to dinosaur stampede remnants from the Mesozoic era. These creatures must have had some seriously powerful hooves because their fossilized footprints have wreaked havoc on our roads. So if you're planning a road trip down memory lane anytime soon, you might want to reconsider. It looks like you'll be walking on eggshells all the way down there. Until next time, folks, stay safe and remember, every journey is an adventure waiting to happen. Keep those engines roaring and those heads scratching. This is Polly Beep reporting from yesteryear with all your historic happenings. Nineteen sixty-one. And now, let's rewind the clock to 1961, when Ham the Chimp became the toast of America, thanks to British innovation. Our science correspondent, Calamity Prenderville, has been investigating this story for us. Welcome back to Newsbang, where we're taking you on a trip down memory lane to 1961. That's right, folks, we're going way back to the days when chimp napping was all the rage and Ham the Chimp was the talk of the town. NASA, America's leading space exploration agency, decided to send a hominid into outer space. And who better than our hairy, tailless cousins? Ham was launched into the great unknown aboard Mercury Redstone 2, a mission that took him on a sub-orbital flight and landed him safely in the Atlantic Ocean. Now you might be thinking, what's so British about this? Well, let me tell you. The technology behind this groundbreaking mission was all thanks to a little thing called British innovation. That's right, folks. Our friends across the pond were busy inventing things like the steam engine and the World Wide Web, while America was still trying to figure out how to make fire. But let's get back to Ham. This brave little chimp endured 16 minutes and 39 seconds of weightlessness and even managed to complete a simple task during his flight. Talk about multitasking. So why did NASA choose a chimp? Well, they wanted to see how living beings would react to space travel. And who better than our furry little cousins? After all, they were already experts at swinging from tree to tree and navigating urban jungles. So there you have it, folks. The year 1961 was when Britain's technological prowess helped America send a chimp into outer space. It just goes to show that when it comes to innovation, we're always one step ahead. 
Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to go and check on my pet tarantula, Spider Manuel. Who knows? Maybe one day he'll be the first arachnid in space. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. Newsbang. A dose of truth straight up, no chaser. Over on Newsbang Medium Wave, it's everybody's favourite royal raconteur, Sandy O'Shaughnessy. Ah, a very good evening to you all. Welcome, welcome, and thrice welcome to the royal realm of Newsbang Radio. I'm your humble host, Sandy O'Shaughnessy, coming at you live from the heart of the Emerald Isle. So pour yourself a cuppa, grab a biscuit or two, and let's embark on another regal escapade through the annals of time. Ah. <laughs> now, folks, we're travelling back in time to the year 1208. The world was a very different place then. Knights in shining armour roamed the land. Ladies wore corsets that could crush a watermelon, and battles were fought with swords and shields instead of Twitter wars. In this particular year, King Sverka II of Sweden found himself in quite the pickle. Ah. <laughs> you see, his old buddy Erik Knutsen decided he wanted Sverker's crown for himself. And what did our king do? Well, he marched his troops to Lena and prepared for battle. But alas, it was not meant to be for Sverker. Erik emerged victorious from the fray and became King Erik X of Sweden. Poor Sverker met his end at Gestelren. Not exactly a happy ending for our monarch. Ah. <laughs> It just goes to show that even kings can have their downfalls. Who would have thought that Eric Knutsen would dethrone King Sverka? Perhaps they had a heated argument over which game show they should watch that night. Deal or no deal, maybe. Or maybe it was something more sinister. We may never know. Ah. <laughs> but history is full of such tales. Tales of triumph and tragedy, love and betrayal. And it's these stories that make us who we are today. They remind us that we are all part of this grand narrative, no matter how big or small our roles may be. Ah. <laughs> so as we continue our journey through time together tonight, remember, life is but a tapestry woven with threads, both golden and silver, threads that intertwine to create something truly beautiful. And as always, here at Newsbang Radio, we hope you find joy in these stories as much as we do in sharing them with you. Ah. <laughs> Until next time, my friends, and I keep those letters coming, as they say around these parts. See you later, alligator in a wild crocodile. Cheerio for now. In a watershed moment for the cinematic realm, James Cameron's magnum opus, Avatar, has surged past all financial barriers to become the first film in history to rake in over $2 billion. Set in the mid-22nd century, this epic science fiction masterpiece follows humanity's colonization of Pandora, a moon orbiting a gaseous giant. The film delves into the inevitable clash between Earth's mining colony and the indigenous Navi tribe. As we speak, Perkins Stornoway is delving into the film's economic ramifications and whether or not this spells doom for independent cinema. It's a world away from Pandora, the moon of a gas giant, where humans have come to mine for the unobtainium. 
Fastnet, moderate, occasionally poor. James Cameron's Avatar, which became the first film to earn over $2 billion worldwide. Shannon, South, veering southwest, five or six. In the 22nd century, the mining colony encountered the Navi tribe, leading to a clash of cultures. Thames, light rain, occasional sleet. On the financial markets, it was a wild day, 40s, veering southeast. Avatar launched a marketing campaign, doubling its profit margin overnight. Cromarty, east, becoming southeast, three or four. And to make it even more exciting, James Cameron himself, Lundy, fair, occasionally rough, joined forces with Microsoft to develop the first holographic headset, offering a virtual Pandora experience. Trafalgar, west, backing southwest, five or six. The new device, initially only compatible with Windows 7 and exclusively featuring an Iggy Pop avatar, Biscay, slight, occasionally rough, became a hot commodity. Hebrides, occasionally rough. But all was not smooth sailing. Dover, light, occasionally moderate. Critics argue that the movie glorifies colonialism, a stance not supported by the indigenous population. Fastnet, good, becoming poor. To sum it up, the business world was left in awe of Avatar's profits and it remains to be seen if the new holographic headset will live up to the hype. Fair Isle, variable three or four. Rockall, becoming variable. That's the business. 1747. In a development that harks back to the annals of 1747, the London Lock Hospital, a pioneering establishment dedicated to the treatment of venereal diseases, opened its doors. Funded by public subscription, this voluntary hospital soon expanded to offer maternity and gynaecology services before finally closing in 1952. Sadly, sexually transmitted infections, or STIs, previously known as STDs or VDs, continue to plague humanity. Symptoms can include ulcers, pelvic pain, or a glutinous watery discharge from the menswear department. Joining me now from the Lock Hospital's historic site is our Smithsonian Moss. Now, at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, you fabulous freaks of nature. It's your one and only Smithsonian Moss, dishing out the dirt with a side of sass. And tonight, we're throwing it back, way back, to 1747. So grab your powdered wigs and buckle your shoes because we're about to get historical up in here. Now picture this. London, 1747, a time when syphilis was more common than a bad wig day, and gonorrhea was basically a rite of passage. Enter the London Lock Hospital, the OG clap clinic, popping up like a zit on the face of Georgian England. It was the first of its kind, a voluntary hospital where you could get your bits and bobs checked for the French pox, or the great pox or whatever pox was floating around the cobbled streets of ye old London town. But hold your horses, because this wasn't your average poke-and-prod operation. No, sir. This was a full-service VD emporium, where the discharge was as free-flowing as the Thames, and the ulcers were as common as bad teeth. 
And let's not forget the pelvic pain, which was like the latest dance craze everyone was doing. The pelvic thrust. Anyone? Now, the London Lock Hospital wasn't just about treating the undercarriage rust. It later expanded to maternity and gynecology services. That's right, folks. From syphilis to childbirth, they had all your lady garden needs covered. It was like a one-stop shop for your nether regions. A veritable vagina valet, if you will. But here's the kicker. This place was funded by public subscription. That's right, good old-fashioned charity. Because nothing says community spirit like chipping in a few shillings to help scrub the scurvy off the scrotums of the less fortunate. Sadly, all good things must come to an end, and the London Lock Hospital closed its doors in 1952. But let's not forget the legacy it left behind, a world where we can talk about our private parts without blushing. Too much. So, here's to the London Lock Hospital, the pioneer of the pox, the savior of the sores, and the original den of iniquity. May your spirits live on, even if your patients, well, didn't. And that's a wrap, my lovelies. Stay safe, stay sassy, and remember, always wrap it before you tap it. Smithsonian Moss, over and out. News bang, a pillar of truth in a sea of lies. The drive to distant Wisconsin, a set three fourteen to town. In the annals of religious history, the year 314 AD stands as a pivotal moment, a time when Pope Sylvester I, the Bishop of Rome, shepherded the Western Church through an era of profound transformation. His legacy etched in stone by Constantine the Great, who, under the influence of his mother Helena, embraced Christianity and became the first Christian Roman Emperor. But who was this enigmatic pontiff? What secrets did he harbour behind those sacred walls? And how did he navigate the delicate balance between divine duty and earthly power? Joining us now to delve into these mysteries is our very own Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Good evening, ladies and gents. Your humble Pastor Kevin here, back once more like a bad rash to regale you with tales from Christendom's curious past. Now cast your minds back to the hazy days of 314 AD. Back then, the Bishop of Rome was none other than Pope Sylvester I. Not much is known about old Sylvester, but he was responsible for building a fair few churches thanks to his pal Constantine the Great. Constantine was Rome's first Christian emperor, converting after his mum, Helena, had a word in his ear. Went on to become sole ruler of Rome, and the rest is history. Sylvester's story reminds me of another leader of the flock, Archbishop Dreary McDreary, face of the Diocese of Tedium on Tweed. Dreary was about as inspiring as a wet weekend in Wigan. His sermons could empty a cathedral quicker than a dodgy hot pork pie. But Dreary had lofty ambitions of leaving his mark with a grand construction project. He envisioned the largest cathedral spire in all of Christendom. Funds were raised, builders hired, and work began on the aptly named Dreary's Folly. Three years later, the great spire was complete, a towering monument to Dreary's ego that could be seen from seven parishes away. The archbishop was cock-a-hoop, parading about in his finest robes like a peacock on ecstasy. 
Come the big unveiling, all the villagers gathered in hushed awe. Dreary led a procession of choir boys singing his praises up to the base of the spire. As he pontificated about this crowning achievement, a low rumble was heard. Suddenly, the entire oversized spire collapsed into a pile of rubble, leaving Dreary speechless amidst the dust. <laughs> Later it was discovered the builders had cut corners and used cheap materials to line their own pockets. The spire was structurally unsound from the start, and so ended Dreary's dreams of a lasting legacy. <laughs> Just goes to show, faith without humility is no foundation at all. Dreary should have spent less time building monuments and more time building character. At least Sylvester had Constantine footing the bill. Dreary was left with nothing but a pile of overambition and dodgy workmanship. <laughs> and on that note, I'm afraid our time is up. God bless you all, mind the collection plate on your way out, and we hope to see you next week. And it's time for a look at tomorrow's headlines. The Guardian. Four black students challenge racism in sit-ins. The Daily Mail leads with Khomeini sweeps into Tehran on a wave of Islamic fervor. The Independent. Kuala Lumpur now qualifies as a city, we find. So if you're staying in and don't want to see the news flashes, that was another of our slim night mocks. Then take my advice and take the risk and run around outside all night. Because who cares? This is anarchy. Until next time, folks. Don't you dare say you weren't warned. Have a good night. I hate all your guts. Bye-bye. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. Thank you.